to each and every one of you. Three hymnals on the pulpit. That's fascinating. Well, I want to begin this morning, um, and if you have your Bibles, you can open a while to 1 Timothy. We are continuing our series through this amazing letter. It's, it's one of my favorite books. As I was preparing for my ordination service, I read through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus once each day, I think for about three months, to try to just be so ingrained in the, the truth that's found uh, in, these, in these amazing books, and they have so much to say. So I'm excited that we're going through these series, this series in these books. Um, so I want to begin this morning by reading this letter that Mike read. You might remember uh, two weeks ago when Mike uh, preached on the first several verses. He read uh, a fictional letter that potentially could be something that Timothy sent to Paul that would have inspired Paul to write the letter of First Timothy. So Mike read this uh, two weeks ago, and I want to read it again because I think it's very uh, applicable to our passage this morning. So if you remember, well, I'll read the letter and then I'll explain why I think it's, it's important. So here's the letter that wasn't actually written, but something Timothy could have written. It says this, Dear Paul, I thought to write to you several times, but I just haven't had the heart to do it. I just didn't know how to put into word what I've been feeling. But I have to face the reality that I'm not cut out for this. I'm not pastoral material. I don't think I have the gifts necessary for this work, at least not as the main pastor. On a team, I'm fine, but I can't do this all alone. Things are a mess here in Ephesus. Several men in the church, especially Hymenaeus and Alexander, are insisting that we teach people the law. And it's their law that, we, that they come up with. They tell people that, that they're sinning if they drink alcohol. They pride themselves on the knowledge that they have. But it's not really true knowledge. And the funny thing is, people love to listen to it. They have a loyal following. No matter how hard I try to encourage and influence them, I'm not having much success. On top of that, some people are leaving the faith altogether. It was a sad day when I realized that the very people I've spent the most time with have all left the church. It breaks my heart to see them go. I've got my hands full with the women of the church. Some are quite immodest and dressed. How do I, a young man, tell them to change their dress? Other women want to be the pastor of the church. They say if a man can preach and teach, a woman can too. I don't know why, but we seem to have a lot of women all alone with great need. There's widows, single parents. I'm trying to take care of them all. It is more than I can handle. The young men are apathetic about spiritual things. They never pray. They come to church to flirt with the girls. I'm trying to lead in all this, but the older members in the church say I'm too young. And they may be right. The wealthy members say that they should be in charge because it's their money that supports the church and they know how to get the things done. No one seems to pay much attention to the elders, much less me. To top it all off, my stomach is in knots. Just the thought of gathering with the people leaves me in cold sweats. I'm just plain tired. 
I guess I'm writing to say, I can't do this. I'm messing everything up. It's just killing me. Your son in the faith, Timothy. So, it's a heartbreaking letter, isn't it? To see the challenges that Timothy was facing in his church. It was a hard, hard ministry that Timothy was undergoing. And so, I think Paul writes this section this morning specifically to help encourage him. And the whole letter is a letter of encouragement and instruction. But this morning, I think it's a deeply emotional passage for Paul because he's, he's relating his own experiences and instructing Timothy, this, this is how you get through this difficult, difficult situation that, that you're going through. So, if you have your Bibles, open to 1 Timothy, if you haven't already. We're going to read verses 12 through 20. Paul writes this. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received the mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the truth that it is. And we thank you that as your truth, it impacts our lives. It changes our very essence. We pray this morning that you would give us wisdom and guidance as we work through the text. And that through the power of your spirit, you would change us. That you would conform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Well, I want to say a brief word about why this passage is here. So, you may have noticed, you may not have, but this, this passage, this book, seems a little out of order compared to the rest of Paul's writings. If you flip over one book, or probably actually one page in your, in your Bible, 
to the book of Second Thessalonians. You see the, the two-verse intro. You can, you can do this if you want, just to, to see what I'm talking about. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church. And then he says in verse 3, we ought to always give thanks. So we have this Thanksgiving passage right after the introduction. If you flip over to 1 Thessalonians, you see the same pattern. And in fact, in the rest of Paul's letters, we have this very same pattern where he says, you know, I'm writing this, I'm writing this to you, and I give thanks. This is the normal pattern. But you'll notice in the book of 1 Timothy, it's a little different, isn't it? He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ, in verse 2, to Timothy, my true child. But then he starts immediately in verse 3, into the exhortation. And then in verse 12, then he comes back and says, I give thanks. You see, see the difference? It's interesting. I think it's worth noting. And, and hopefully you picked up on it as you, were, as you were reading through the book. And I think there's a very specific reason he does this. And notice the last three verses of the chapter we just read, or the, the portion we just read. He gives these two examples of Hymenaeus and Alexander. And I think what Paul's doing is... He's, in, in, uh, in verses 3 through 11, setting us up with a problem. Paul, I have, Timothy, here's the problem. In the end, with Hymenaeus and Alexander, he's saying, these are two examples of the problem that I'm talking about. And then, in the middle, our text this morning, verses 12 through 17, I think he gives us the solution to the problem. You see, like I said, this ministry that Timothy was engaged in was hard. It was, is so, he encountered so many difficulties. And Timothy didn't have the solution. And so Paul says, I'm, I'm going to, if you're, you're facing false teachers, you're facing guys who are shipwrecking their faith, here's the solution. Here's the encouragement for the things that you're facing. That's why I read the letter. Because to remind us of the things that he is facing. And now here, Paul is saying, in your ministry, take courage for this, for these reasons. And so, let's look at the text this morning. Look at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And, uh, and I will say this, we can, we're going to break this up into two sections. Verses 12 through 14, and then verses 15 through 16. He says, I give thanks... I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. I give thanks. Who does he give thanks to? To Jesus Christ our Lord. Why does he give thanks? Well, he gives thanks because the Lord judged him. But how does he describe Jesus? Notice, he describes Jesus in a certain way. He says, it is Jesus who has given me strength. And and thinking about the hard ministry that Timothy's going through, the first thing Paul wants Timothy to know is it's Jesus who has given strength. It's Jesus who is the strength giver. It's this ministry that you're engaged in, the things that you're doing, it's not coming from your strength. It's, it's from the strength of the Lord. And what Paul's doing is he's relating his own experience and saying, Timothy, this, this is kind of going to be your experience too. 
right? So everything Paul says here, he's talking about himself, but it's instruction to Timothy. This is, this is how it happens. And so Paul, in thinking about all the hardships that Paul himself went through, he always understood that it was Jesus who gave him, gave him strength. It's a hard ministry. But it makes sense, doesn't it? We read in the beginning of the book of Acts, Luke tells us, that everything that happens in Acts is the work of Jesus Christ. He says, Every, the spreading of the church, the spreading of the gospel is the work of Jesus. And so it makes sense that if it's the work of Jesus, it's Jesus who enables the workers, doesn't it? Jesus is, is the only source of your strength, Timothy. And then he gives the reason why he gives thanks. He says, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. The reason Paul gives thanks to God is because of his, his calling and his appointment to ministry, his calling and his ministry. And I think what Paul has in mind here is actually the moment of his conversion. That's why I read earlier the, the account of Paul's conversion, traveling on the Damascus Road, set, against, set to uh, and, uh, trap and kill Christians in Damascus, and Jesus appears to him and speaks to him, changes him at the very core, and sets him on the path to ministry. It's Jesus who did all this. And I think this is the moment uh, that Paul has in mind here when he's writing to Timothy. Because he judged me faithful. And notice that the word judged is a past tense. And also you can say he considered me faithful. He thought me faithful. Jesus, Paul's saying, Jesus, on that road, looked at me and said, this person is faithful. This is how Jesus thought about me. He considered him faithful. And then, what's he do? He appoints him to ministry. He sets him on the path to ministry. It's uh, the description, what, what Jesus tells him is amazing. I will set you, you are the, my apostle to the Gentiles. You are taking this to kings. Right? Paul's ministry is unparalleled in the history of the church. This is a, a, a fantastic ministry. It's Jesus who, who called him to that and appointed him to that. But at his conversion, God considered him faithful. God judged Paul faithful. He saw him this way. And I think Paul's a little bit contrasting himself to the false teachers here that he talked about in the previous section, right? All these teachers who teach their own thing and don't, don't like sound doctrine, that all the things that Mike preached on last week. Paul's contrasting himself to those guys who are converted and then they are unfaithful, right? Paul says, uh, I was converted because Jesus saw me as faithful. And there's a, there's a lot of different interpretations about what does it mean. Well, did he respond faithfully or, or uh, did God know he would be faithful and so that's why he saved him? I don't think Paul has any of that in mind here. I just think Paul says, God saw me different than I saw myself. Because look what he says. We know for a fact that Jesus did not save Paul because he was faithful, because he was doing faithful things. Look what Paul was doing. Look with me at verse 13. Though formerly... I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. 
Paul, before his conversion, was set against God's plan. He was the exact opposite of faithful. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Interestingly, I think this whole passage breaks down by the word faithfulness. Paul says in 12, Jesus judged me faithful. And in 13, the last word, unbelief, is the the negative form of faithful, unfaithful. I acted in ignorance and unfaithfulness. Paul says, I was acting unfaithfully. And I didn't know it. I was ignorant. I didn't know what I was doing. But it was unfaithful. That's how I was acting. And yet, Jesus, when he looked at me, he saw me not as unfaithful, but as faithful. Do you see this disparity that Paul sets up between the way he sees himself as someone who, or sees the way he was, as someone who was exact, acting in direct contradiction to the way God, to God's plans, and how God saw him as faithful. It's a beautiful contrast that Paul is setting up here. And it, it's important to say, too, that, that ignorance is not an excuse here. Notice Paul says, I was acting ignorantly, but that, that's not an excuse. Paul, it's not a, a reason to say, well, you know, maybe I can, maybe I'm still okay just because I didn't know, right? Not knowing is still unbelief. You, you still don't know. You still are not righteous. You still have not accepted the grace of Jesus Christ in your life. Ignorance is not an excuse. And so we have this, this beautiful contrast that Paul says. I saw myself one way. Jesus sees me, sees, sees me a whole different way. And then look what he says in verse 14. What's the result of this? And the, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The faith that Paul's talking about, and in love, his ability to actually carry out the ministry. Where do they come from? What does Paul say? He says, those things, my belief itself, and the love, my ability to carry out this ministry that he set before me, those things themselves come from Jesus. He had to set me on the path that that he put me on. I wasn't going to get there myself. I wasn't going to believe myself. He had to put me there. And so Paul's view of himself is different. And I will say this. Um, well, we'll save, we'll save that for later. Anyway, so that's, that's verses 12 through 14. Paul contrasting his view of himself with God's view of himself. Well, what is the reason that Paul creates this disparity in views? Well, look with me at verses 15 through 16. And this give, Paul gives us the reason for his disparity. He says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. This gives us, Paul's giving us the reason why this difference exists. 
And notice how he starts it. He's, he gives us a, a phrase, a saying. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Paul does this a couple times. And so this is probably uh, a statement or a creed almost that was floating around the early church. That if you call yourself a Christian, this is part of what you believe. And the, the, the phrase is this. Uh, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the phrase. But, but notice how he, he intros it. He says, this saying is trustworthy. That trustworthy is actually the exact same word in verse 12 where Paul says, he judged me faithful. He judged me trustworthy. So, but I was unfaithful. I was acting untrustworthily. And yet here is a phrase that is trustworthy, that is faithful. You see how this whole passage actually breaks down through this word faithful. And he said, Paul's saying, God saw me as faithful. I was unfaithful. And here is a statement that is of ultimate faithfulness, that is the ultimate thing to trust. This is truth, Paul is saying. It's deserving of full acceptance. Believe it. And it's that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It is the best statement ever made, I think. It's the only statement that offers hope to anyone, to any of us. And I think if, you, if you've been reading the cross of Christ with us, if you've been going to a small group, reading the blog, you're beginning to understand the depths of this statement. It seems so simple, and there's so much profound truth in that. How does Jesus save sinners? Why does he save sinners? How can God save sinners? Through Jesus. There's so much in this statement. But Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't go into all that. He, he does that other places in, the, in his writings, but he doesn't go into that here. He just leaves it at that. But then he does qualify it with one other phrase, doesn't he? He says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul saying, I am the worst sinner there is. And I think, uh, we, actually at Deacon's meeting, we talked about this yesterday. Is it fair for us to, to echo this phrase, for me to say, I'm the worst sinner I know? And I, I think there's actually some truth to Paul's statement that he actually was the worst sinner ever. I mean, think, think of all the things he was doing, the, the list of things he describes himself as doing. If there was ever anyone in history who was opposed to the plan of God, which is kind of the ultimate definition of sin, right? Sin is opposition to God and God's will. If there was ever anyone who was opposed to what God was doing in the world, it was Paul. He was on his way to slaughter a bunch of Christians. He was leading a giant crusade against the church. Paul may well have been the worst of sinners. But notice what he says. Notice the tense of that verb, of whom I am the worst. He didn't say I was the worst. He, earlier he talks about the past tense. This is who I was, formerly. But here he says, I am the worst of sinners. He brings to the present tense. He's, he's now looking at himself, saying this is who, who there's still... There's still some of that in me. This, what I was, has effects for who I still am now. 
sin is still at work in him. And this, this is a, a, one of the many tensions of the New Testament with who we were before the grace of Jesus and who we are after. And we are a new creation in Christ. If you've been coming to Sunday school, we're talking about this process of being a new creation in Christ. That's, a tr- that's true. And yet, sin is still in us. Paul very famously talks about this in Romans chapter 7. How sin is still at work in us. And we do, we do the things we don't want to do and we don't do the things we want to do. You should remember that passage, right? Sin is still very active in Paul's life. And so there's a, still the grace and mercy of Jesus rescued me. And yet sin is still at work in my very core. We get a glimpse at the power of sin, don't we? It, that sin is, is real. It, it, it's, it tempts us. It's an alluring thing. Our whole society, we look around this world and we see the power of sin at work. But all the more we see the grace of Jesus at work, don't we? That this, this is Paul, who Paul was and yet Jesus saved him from that. That this sin, sin can be so much a part of us and yet through God's grace... We, we can defeat sin. We can conquer that power. Beautiful picture of the grace of God. And so, why would God save the worst sinner? You may ask that question, right? If Paul was the worst sinner ever, why would God save him? I think it's a legitimate question. Well, this is interesting. We get a rare glimpse into the saving purposes of Jesus in Paul's life. It doesn't happen very often. We know that the Bible talks about God saves some who he's, God's elective purposes. He chooses people. But we don't know why he does that. Turn over with me to Romans chapter 9. And you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 10. He's talking about the Abrahamic promise, the promises that God made to Abraham. How would that go from generation to generation? He says this, Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I don't want to go into the, there's a lot of theology in there that I don't want to get into. But look at the phrase that he says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. He doesn't tell us why God chose Esau over Jacob. And he does say it was not because of his works, doesn't he? And in fact, uh, if you read the accounts of Jacob in Genesis, you probably have asked the question, why did God choose this guy? He was a deceiver. He lied. He, oh, he just did all sorts of craziness. Why did God choose him? Well, Paul reminds us of this, reminds us of this fact, but he, he doesn't say why. He chose Jacob. And so when scripture discusses God's election, it doesn't often 
say why. But here, we get a rare glimpse into why God chose Paul. Look at this in verse 16 with me. But I received mercy for this reason. There's a reason why God showed me mercy. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. It's the reason that God's perfect patience might be displayed. That God, in his perfection, by saving the, the worst sinner possible, his grace is shown all the more that he could save me. Paul says, that's, that's why God showed me mercy. Because in my path that was dead set against him, he showed that he's powerful enough and merciful enough to pull me out of that and show me mercy and save me. So that, and seeing that everyone else, they see that God can do that. Paul's the example. Everyone else says, yes, God can save me. God shows me mercy too. Paul's the example of God's saving power. That's why God saved Paul and set him on this ministry, appointed him to this ministry. That as the worst sinner, he would be the example to all those who would believe in him for eternal life. If he can save the worst, he can save me. Amen. And then, see how emotional this is for Paul, I think. That this is the God that we serve. And so, in verse 17, he has a benediction right in the middle of the book. Almost right at the beginning of the book. Because he's so struck. In recounting this to Timothy, he is so struck by what he's just said. That he says, to the king of ages, immortal Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He breaks out into a hymn to praise God in light of his glory. That this eternal king of ages, the ruler, who is immortal, he is so far above us. He is, is more than we can imagine. He is outside of time itself. That this is the God who showed me mercy. Breaks out into song because he is so overwhelmed by it. So that's our text this morning. That's beautiful. And I want to, as we close, draw three application points for us. And the first one is this God is the final authority on what faithfulness is and isn't. Paul, in, in writing to Timothy and, and giving him encouragement about this hard ministry that he was in. Could have done a number of things. He, he could have recounted all of his successes. Could have recounted all the ways that he was faithful in ministry. All the ways that, uh, all the churches that he planted. He could have done that. And that, I think, would have been an encouragement to Timothy. Yeah, yeah, you know, positive motivation. Go, keep going. You can do this too. Isn't this what we hear in our culture today? But he doesn't. He could have, you know, 
said the same thing to Timothy. Hey, you can do all this stuff. But he doesn't. And I think the reason is because as this ministry is so difficult, it would have been easy for Timothy to uh, be unfaithful. Paul uh, elsewhere talks about uh, pastors who ear tickle, who, who say what their hearers want to say. He could have uh, given false theology like the false teachers that he talks about. It would, Timothy would have been so tempted to do all of these deceitful, underhanded, sinful things, unfaithful things, to try to bring about change in his church. But he doesn't. And I think there's a, a consequence for pastors here. That when we think of God as the ultimate judge of what is faithful and what is not faithful, I think there, there's certainly a, a call for pastors here, isn't there? That their ministry, what they do, is judged by God, not by us. And, and it's, it's helpful for our pastors to remember this, and I know that they do. But it's also a charge to us, isn't it? To not try to be the judge of our pastor's faithfulness. Because we are not, are we? It's their judge of who, what is faithful and what is not faithful is God himself. And I don't really want to try to judge that anyway in comparison to God. And so it's helpful for us to remember that. that, that uh, but I think even in our ministry, and this, is a, this book applies to all of us, doesn't it? And all of us are out there trying to share the gospel, trying to do ministry that is sometimes really hard, that, that people don't always want to hear. People don't always want to hear that they're sinners, but that God is gracious. People don't, don't want to hear that necessarily. So, but we do it because that's our calling. But it's hard, isn't it? And so, just like Timothy, we can be tempted to, to not follow on the path that God has set us and to use these other, other deceitful ways. And so, we need to remember that he is the one who judges our faithfulness. And I think we should be more consumed with what he did for us. And I think uh, we often are uh, consumed with what we're doing, aren't we? We think that, you know, spending 50 hours around the church, doing all these things in, in church ministry is what makes us faithful, right? I'm faithful if I do all this. And, and we can look at someone else and say, oh, well, they're not faithful because they're not doing all these things, right? We, we kind of all have a tendency to do this. We need to remember that. That, that uh, God is the judge of what is faithful, not us. And I think here's, here's, where the, uh, here's where the rub is. We should be more consumed with what he did for us than with what we can do for him. Ministry in church is, is a good thing. In fact, we're commanded to do it. But where it becomes sinful is when we are more consumed with what we're doing for him than with what he did for us at the cross. That's what Paul's consumed about in this passage, isn't it? That he showed me mercy. Paul's consumed with what God did for him over and over and over again. So God is the final authority on what faithfulness is or isn't. Number two, past sins have no bearing on our ability to serve him. In some ways, this is the exact opposite of what he said. The, the, the first point is, 
uh, we can let our pride stand in the way of serving. Well, here Paul's saying, don't let your shame stand in the way of serving. The greater the sin, the more abundant the mercy. That's what Paul says. That's, that's why it's so important that Paul says, I was the worst of sinners. Because I was so bad. And yet, God's abundant mercy pulled me out. It becomes easy for us, I think. And, and perhaps some of us in the church today are struggling with past sins in our life. Things that we're ashamed of. Things that I say, oh man, if, if everyone knew that about me, they would never let me serve. They, wouldn't, they would never want to talk to me again. It, and so we, we don't. We, we don't serve. We don't open up. We don't minister for the gospel. I think Paul's saying here, you, you don't have to do that. You don't have to let the past sin in your life control your ability to serve now. They have no, past sins have no bearing on our ability to serve and in fact, I think it is true that the greater, the greater the sin, the greater the weakness, the more, more God is glorified. I want to read, this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a famous passage, but I think it, it highlights perfectly this point. Paul says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low so that no human being might boast In the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Paul's very plain there. God very often chooses the weak things. And I think that's what Paul's echoing here again to Timothy. (laughs) I was the worst, and yet God chose me. And so, there is nothing any of us can ever do in our past that is worth worse than Paul. And yet, Paul says, no. God still appoints us to ministry. God still has work for us to do. Finally, our third point. Effective ministry only comes when we see the depth of our sin. Now you might say, wait a second, you just said sin isn't important for our ability to minister, Right? Well, hear me out. I said, past sin has no bearing on our, minis- our ability to minister. But active sin in our lives can absolutely affect our ministry. I think that's why Paul brings it to the present tense. He, he, he wants us to bridge the past and the present. But we, ha- we have to be very aware of the depth of sin in our hearts. There's always a tension between sin's power and the Spirit's work, as we talked about in Romans 7. And, you know, I think there's one very logical perspective on this, that, well, yeah, if I'm not aware of the depth of, say, pride in my heart, I'm going to go about ministry, doing the things I want to do the way I want to do it, and I don't care who else I step on. 
So if I'm not aware of the depth of that sin in my heart, then my ministry isn't going to be effective because I'm going to step on everyone that I'm trying to minister to. Right? So there's a very practical uh, illustration of, of why we need to be aware of the sin in our hearts. But I think there's an even, an even greater realization that we can come to. And that when we realize how really, truly, how the depth of our sin, how prone we are, as we sang, how prone we are to wander, that causes us to hold Christ, hold, cling to Christ all the more. So that as we see the, the greatness of His mercy, that He is the only one who gives us strength for ministry. We cling to that. I think of, I don't know uh, if you've ever gone down to the National Gallery of Art. I've been there a couple times, and uh, I'm a little bit of a skeptic when it comes to these things. So I don't know if you're like me, but you're walking along, and you see a, maybe a nice Monet painting. <laughs> and uh, you know this is probably just the pride of my own heart. But I'm like, wow, that's not anything special. Come on. I just throwing some paint up there. And, all right? That, this is kind of my tendency. But... Wouldn't it be very interesting for me to, right next to that Monet, hang a picture from my two-year-old daughter? All of a sudden, you see the greatness of Monet, don't you? Because <laughs> uh, my daughter can barely uh, color a straight line. And so I think that's, that's a perfect illustration of what Paul's getting at here. That when we see how deep sin runs in us. We see how deep the well is. It forces us to realize that that God's mercy can reach all the way down there and pull it up and pull us out of it. That's, and so the deeper we (laughs) understand our sin, the deeper we understand God's mercy. And the deeper we say, I need you to do this ministry for me. I don't have what it takes. I'm, I'm consumed with my own pride, my own heart. I need you to minister for me. I need your strength. I need your wisdom. So realizing the depth of our sin causes us to realize the grace of God and see the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ all the more. If you're here this morning and you don't understand what this grace is, I would encourage you to to talk to myself, talk to Steve, talk to Pastor Mike. Because it's a vital truth to understand our sin and to understand God's grace. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a merciful God. That you are a God who delights to save sinners. We're told that the angels rejoice in heaven when one sinner comes to know you, when one lost sheep is found. We thank you that you are merciful, that you have sent your son to die for our sin. 
And we thank you that you give us the strength to endure and to persevere in the midst of sometimes very difficult ministry, difficult gospel work, when we're sharing your truth with friends, with family, those we love. That's the hardest, the most difficult ministry I think there is, is to share the gospel with our loved ones who don't know you. And so we thank you that that you are the strengthener, that you are the merciful one. And we pray that your spirit would allow us to be faithful in that, that you would keep us from sin and temptation in our ministry. We thank you, and it's the name of Jesus we pray.